trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is the word of the Lord. There was a small church in uh, North Carolina. I pastored, I mean, I pastored a church there. I went to seminary in Southeastern, and I used to go from the church over to the hospital in Rocky Mountain. I passed by this little church frequently on the way, and, and uh, it was named Corinth Baptist Church. Not my first pick for names for a church, uh, but uh, used to have a sign out there, and I, and I really didn't, not into church sign revelation, but, but I did ride by there, and I'd look at the sign periodically, and one day I rode by and it caught my eye, and it was something there that was really, uh, I still remember today, but it had trials and tribulation. And down below that it said, some say, oh, why me? And then right under there it said, why not you? And that small statement, even after all these years, a lot of theology packed in that, by the way, uh, for such a small statement. And it kind of comes at you hard, but, but there's some truth there. And, uh, and that's the way the truth comes at us sometimes, is in a kind of a harsh way. And James, as he's writing this epistle, he's, he's addressing it to uh, Jewish Christians that have been scattered abroad, you know, basically following this huge wave of uh, persecution, uh, following the martyrdom of Stephen. If you go and look in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, you can see that. But, you know, I can't help but to think during the times when they were enduring the persecution that they were enduring and going through the suffering and the frustrations that they were experiencing, and James was trying to help them get some encouragement, some context to what was going on. I, I can't help but to think maybe they were thinking the same way. You know, why me? You know, why now? Why this? And maybe some of us, even as we're confronted with adversity and, and trial, I can't help but to think that maybe we think the same thing. Why me? Why now? You know, why this? And, you know, the answer for our Jewish Christian brothers and sisters at that point in time, and the answer for us today, if we kind of fall back on that broken way of thinking, is the same. You know, why not you? You know, why not now? Why not this? You know, we, we live in a fallen world, and it appears, and this is a news flash. This doesn't show any depth of exegetical prowess that I lay this on you here, but we are going to have hardships in this life. And as such, it's common on our landscape, so it would do us well if we think frequently about wisdom regarding how we can best glorify God through those trials. And so tonight in this passage, I just want to make the best use of our time and uh, just three quick observations. And the first one is, is that trials are inescapable, newsflash, but you're going to understand why we need to rethink that constantly. Uh, Trials are the machinery uh, of sanctification. And there are godly dividends to our trials. So let's just dig in on the first one. Trials are inescapable. Why do we need to continually restate this? Well, if we look in God's word, it's continually restated. If we got it, then we would have it. But it's obvious that we don't really got it. You know, so we have to revisit it periodically and restate it. Uh, James restated the obvious where he said, when you meet trials of various kinds, as a reminder, uh, Peter in 1 Peter 4.12 does the same thing. He says, just as James... Peter made sure to restate the obvious. He said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So we see in the whole counsel of God's word this being restated and a reminder. In fact, 
uh, it does us well to think about trials and difficulties and adversity. Some people think it's kind of a buzzkill to do that, but it's really helpful to prepare in times of feasting for times of famine and to prepare our hearts and minds and be vigilant and think soberly about these things. In fact, the Bible, in my estimation, I'm sure many of you would agree, is probably the best informed consent document I've ever seen. I mean, every believer should be very clear as we go forward down the pathway of sanctification what we're to expect. The psalmist said in Psalm 119.71, he said, it's good for me that I was afflicted. It's good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Now, people will not line up to hear that sermon, but they should because it's good and sound doctrine. Paul reminds us in Romans that even God did not spare his own son from difficulty, but he freely gave him up for us all. Jesus reminds us in John 16, 33, that in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And regardless of the nature of the circumstances of our trials, they're all nested securely in God's will. And this is so important for us to remember because at times it seems just like it's arbitrary. God is not the author of evil. But in our trials and in our adversity, it is clear that his sovereignty, his providence, and his strength for us is woven throughout. It helps us to know this as we're going through them. It helps a brother and sister to come alongside of us and remind us of this as we're going through adversity. For us who believe a big part of the pathway through difficulties is how we perceive them and how we react to them. And when we look in the whole counsel of God's word, we see real people dealing with real problems. But there is an end that is godly gain. And we'll speak to that shortly. So the second point is this. After we know God's word is evident that trials are just a part of the landscape, they're going to come our way. Again, news flash, but we need to restate that often. We need to talk about it. We need to get it out there. And the next point is is that trials are the machinery of sanctification. You know, if I were to poll the room right now, I guarantee you that all the believers in here would say, you know, I want to progress. You know, I want to move forward in my faith. I want to mature spiritually. So that desire is there. But we can't expect realistically, it's not even possible that we can grow spiritually, but yet be exempt somehow from the testing and the trials and the the difficulties that life brings. It's unrealistic and it's impossible. But even if we could, we would just be retarded spiritually. Our growth would be retarded because we would just naturally gravitate towards sin. We we wouldn't gravitate towards holiness on our own. We would just gravitate towards pride and and vanity and and self-sufficiency. We wouldn't gravitate naturally uh, towards uh, spiritual depth, depth and dependence on God. So we can be grateful that our Father loves us so much that he will not let us go, that he will hold fast to us. And he will move us through these adversities. And as a result of these, we will grow. Sometimes kicking and screaming all the way. A heart ruled by the Holy Spirit is going to desire to mature. We want to see the dark corners. And I I guarantee you that all of us in here who believe and, and really have a heart 
uh, to mature. We want to see the dark corners. We want to see the blind spots. We want to see the thin spots. We want to see the chinks in our armor. We want to decrease that he might increase. We want these things. We long for these things in our heart and we're frustrated by our flesh. That is a good posture. When we see that trials are the mechanisms, they're the ways, they're the means, some of the mediums through which God takes the fallen things of this world and turns what was meant for evil for our good. Even Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, 28, a passage we're very familiar with, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God takes these things and he molds us and shapes us. Now, even though we know this, even though we know that trials are going to come, even though we know that, that all of these things work together for our good, we typically don't react joyfully. And I think even in some very young believers and even some of us that's been around for a little while, there's still uh, this, this mental image of that we should be gleeful or you know, we should be dancing a jig whenever we're in the middle of an adversity. And that's just... That's just wrong-headed. It's just not, not, that's not the intent of the scripture. And that joy, we're thinking more happiness, what happens around you, not joy that comes, a pure joy that comes from gratitude for what God is teaching us in the adversity. Generally, when we're going through an adversity or some trial or testing, we feel sorrow. They don't feel good. And so... We're confused, I think, a lot of times about how sorrow and joy can occur simultaneously, but they can. A lot of times we feel sorrow because we brought something on ourselves. Uh, some, or maybe the trial or the testing or the adversity comes totally from the outside of, uh, of us. It comes not upon us of our own choosing. It's some consequence maybe that we brought. I mean, any combination of those things, but it's on us. But even in the midst of that, regardless of the circumstance... We can still rejoice, even as Paul reminds us in Romans 5, 31, that we are to rejoice in our sufferings. Now, when we hear that, most people say, well, why would we be joyful in the midst of our suffering? I don't feel joyful. You know, why would I be rejoicing in the midst of my suffering? I don't feel like rejoicing. I feel sorrow. I feel pain, anguish. Well, maybe it would help us to see Maybe it would help us if we were to see some of the dividends. And this is where we go, this is where we go to the bone of this matter. And if some of you'd like to drink some coffee with me sometimes, we can go to some Puritan writings and I can help you understand the school of affliction and the depth of it and the beauty, really, that comes from adversity. But we need to see that the dividends that come, the godly dividends that come are the reason we should rejoice. And that's the third point. They're godly dividends to our trials. So we know trials are going to come. Can't get around those things. They're going to come at us and come at us hard. Second thing is that these are the machinery. These are the ways and the means that God uses the fallen things of this world to shape us and to mold us. And then we see that there are dividends to these trials. Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 1, 7, he says that the tested genuineness of your faith is more precious than gold. So there is a profit to be had here. There is a dividend that comes from the pain and it's a godly dividend. Charles Spurgeon wrote, faith untried may be true faith, 
but it's sure to be a little faith. And it's likely to remain dwarfish so long as it is without trials. Faith never prospers so well as when all things are against her. Her tempests are her trainers and lightnings are her illuminators. Now again, we don't rejoice because we're in the trial. As we mature, however, we may learn to rejoice in the trials we face because of the results that they produce in us. Now, we might see in the midst of the trial some revealed weakness, some, uh, some attitude, some sin, some idolatry that's more prominent than we previously thought. We would have never seen that had it not been for the difficulty. Now, for the mature believer, somebody who can back away from that and say, I never would have seen that had I not gone through that difficulty. I never would have known my heart posture was so broken in that area. I would have never considered. I thought this was done and put away. I didn't realize it was still prominent in my life until I went through that difficulty. And you do the, the kind of the after action review and the military people in here, forgive me, I can't help myself. When you do the after action review and you, you look over it, you go, wow, I never would have saw that. Oh, Father, thank you. What a blessing. That is the dividend, and it's worth its weight in gold. James talks about the dividend that comes with the full effect. That's what he says. Let, it, let building the steadfastness of weathering trials, let it have its full effect, the full scope of the effect. And that steadfastness develops. Each time you go into to battle, you're fighting on ground that becomes more and more familiar. And you know that you don't go into the battle alone. You go into the battle with an advocate, with the strength of the Holy Spirit, and that the Father is not uh, doing this arbitrarily, but there is a good and godly end to this. And each time you step on that ground, it's more familiar than it was the first time. And your confidence is there because of the object of your confidence, which is Jesus Christ. And we fight the battle. We go through. We put one foot in front of the other and we progress through it by God's grace. And each time, it doesn't get easier, but it just becomes more familiar. And we can even pull another brother and sister along and, and help them as they're struggling in this way. Those are the dividends, the godly dividends of trial. James says it's the full effect that when we develop steadfastness, we become veterans of the school of adversity, of crosses and losses. Then we develop another layer each time of character, godly character. Now James mentions in this cumulative effect, he says that we're made perfect. Well, we, you and I know there's nothing perfect in this existence. So what is he talking about when, when we look at this? Well, he's talking about the totality of it. In other words, if we find ourselves at some point in our sanctification arriving at a place where we can consciously understand that the adversity is going to help us, it's going to be a blessing to us in some way, instead of just focusing so much on the pain and the, the difficulty, which is real, you can't deny it, but knowing that underlying that there are good and godly dividends that are going to come from that, then we can rejoice. And you see, James says... That's perfect. It's not perfect, but it's perfect. And then he says, not only will it be perfect, 
perfect. But he says, you're going to be lacking in nothing. Well, somebody says, well, I'm lacking. Everybody's lacking in something. You don't have any hair. I don't have a job. I don't have a car. I'm lacking. Well, brother, sister, let me tell you this. If you can go through a trial and weather the pain, the real pain that comes with it, but come out the other side of it and say, there was a godly dividend to that. I grew through that. I helped somebody else along the way. You're lacking in nothing. You've got all that you need. So, brothers and sisters, be encouraged. We don't, we don't go through these things arbitrarily. There is a good and godly plan. God's hand is upon us since the day we believe to mold us and shape us and to conform us into the image of his son. Just like a potter with the clay, he molds us and shapes us. Adversities are part of that molding and shaping. And while they're painful and while they're not favorable and while they're not something we long for, there are good and godly dividends that come from them. Ask any weathered saint and they'll tell you that it's true. Difficulties are inescapable. They're going to come at us, come at us hard. We need to talk about them and often in a context of scripture and realize they're part of a plan. Second thing is, is that they are the machinery. They are some of the ways and some of the means by which God causes growth in us. And we should want that. And then finally, there are good and godly dividends to our trials. Jerry Bridges in his book, I'll leave you with this. One of the things I'll leave you with. Jerry Bridges in his book said, trusting God. He said, we honor God by choosing to trust him when we don't understand what he's doing or why he has allowed some adverse circumstance to occur. As we seek God's glory, we be sure that he has purposed our good and that he won't be frustrated in fulfilling that purpose. He is pursuing our good. He is not the author of evil. He takes those things of this world that are evil and he uses them for our good. For those maybe here who don't yet trust in the gospel or maybe someone you know that doesn't yet trust in the gospel, when we talk about rejoicing in our trials, that just sounds kind of nutty to them. It sounded nutty to me when I didn't believe. And the way we can help those individuals encourages them by putting our faith on display. We can bear witness to the fact that our hope is within us because of the joy that was set before him, Christ, suffered for us. The good and godly dividend that came from that was the fact that he bore our shame on the cross. He bore our sin. He bore our wrath. He reconciled us to God. Rebels, who are we? that he would even consider us. But yet, he reconciled us to the Father. And as such now, we're spared from his wrath. And he is working in our lives every day to draw us nearer and nearer and nearer to an eternity with him. For those that face trials and tribulations, the pain is real, the hurt is real, but when we go into them, we know that we do not go into them alone, that we have an advocate by placing our faith in Christ. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. He is not against us. He is for us. And that gives us reason to hope. And even as Paul said in Romans 12, 12, he says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant 
in prayer. Brother and sister, be encouraged, and let us pray. Amen.